0: Well, if you'll uh, take out your Bibles and open them up to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As you see in your bulletin, we're going to begin our time together uh, this evening, starting in verse 13 and moving all the way through verse 11 of chapter 5. So chapter 4, verse 13, all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. And if you have been doing some uh, reading ahead, you know that there's many doctrines that are described here and, and mentioned here within uh, these uh, multitude of verses. And it's our uh, goal uh, this, this evening to give a bird's eye view on this second coming of Christ. And then the next few weeks, Lord willing, do a deep dive and, and get very specific in what we believe about the resurrection from the dead, what we believe about uh, what many call the secret rapture, what we believe about the day of the Lord. But we need to understand that Paul's purpose in writing these things to the Thessalonian believers, I believe, and many commentators agree, even before we read the text, is there for us in verse 11 of chapter 5. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now, we could scratch at the original language here, this idea of encouraging one another. Actually, we have the same word that, that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit, the comforter, this paraclete, this advocate. Paul is calling the people of God here in the Thessalonian region to uh, come alongside of one another in power to make sure that they are built up, that they are edified, that they are strengthened, that they are restored. Better yet, that they are ready for the coming day of the Lord. It's this idea of Proverbs, as iron sharpens iron, as the wise counsel, as the wise man surrounds himself with wise counsel. Paul's saying that In this understanding of the day of the Lord, in this understanding of the second coming of Christ, we need to be very disinterested in in speculative and abstract theology. But we need to be asking the question so what? What does all of this mean for the practical Christian life? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my family? what does this mean for my church? How am I to use these doctrines to better walk faithfully with the Lord, with my brothers and sisters in Jesus? And so Paul wants us to to not delve into the speculations of where we are on the graphs and where we fall within the charts. And he definitely doesn't want us to start trying to you know, sort out some mathematical equations or figure out some scientific algorithms on when Jesus is going to return. He just wants us to simply know that Jesus will one day return for His people and for that day we need to be a people who are ready and encouraging one another to be ready and and helping the church to be ready. And sharing the good news that the God-man, Jesus Christ Himself, will return again in judgment for the quick and the dead. And so, you, you actually can see it. If you, if you look at the flow of the text, in, in chapter 4, verse 13, he begins to talk about this doctrine of the last things. What we would call eschatology. And he moves very swiftly through all of these doctrines, through all of these teachings that have caused so much frustration uh, in the life of the evangelical church. And then he moves right on into verse 12 of chapter 5 with final instructions. He means it. This matters for the daily Christian life. And so that is how we're going to handle uh, this portion of God's Word, especially this evening. And so, again, starting in verse 13 of chapter 4, reading through verse 11 of chapter May we ask God's help so that we might rightly hear. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would uh, give us the opportunity to hear you speak. And so would you give us ears to hear by your Holy Spirit so that we might hear it rightly, so that it might pierce our hearts, so that we might rightly hear it, knowing that right hearing comes with obedience. Let us know, Lord, that it is not our job to speculate when you might return but that we, would, uh, that we would rest in the truths of the gospel, that you will return for your people, and we need to be a people who are always ready and longing for the day of the Lord. And so, Father, would you allow us to search our hearts, enable us to, to dive deep into our own hearts so that, we might, uh, so that we might know if we are standing in a right relationship with you that we would be ready On that last day, uh, if you uh, would so come tonight even, would we be ready? Let us search ourselves. Let us pursue holiness together. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Hear now the word of God. Finally, uh, then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more. Here it is that uh, Paul is, is talking about this idea of sanctification. And I wanted to read that so that we might know it's a running theme. And now in verse 13, as he's talking about how we are to brotherly love, as we are to mortify the flesh, as we are to work hard for the glory of God, he says this in verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for it. Well, uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about the hope that we have in the resurrection of the dead coming uh, in verses 13 through 15. But one of the things that we need to understand here is this idea of sleeping. Maybe your translation of God's Word says uh, something along the lines, but we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep. Ignorant is probably the better translation there. It's this idea of not knowing. Paul is very particular in saying that we must know something about those who have died, the saints who have gone before us. And it's interesting here that that Paul uses the language of sleeping to describe those who have gone on to be with the Lord. It's one of those words that maybe catches us by surprise. It's not the way that we speak of death, but in fact, it's the way that the scriptures speak of death. It's the way that the prophets of old, like Elijah and Elisha, have spoken of death. It's the way that our Lord Jesus speaks of death. You know, as we often hear the Lord in the Gospels speaking before He raises someone from the dead, that they are simply or merely sleeping. And oftentimes we think that that is because Jesus is about to raise them from the dead, right? That their death is but temporary. And Paul uses that language to draw your attention to this sleep that the saints have now found themselves in, in death, is that very thing. It is indeed temporary. That as the bodies of believers are are laid into the ground, as we commit them even in our funeral services back to the ground in which they once came, dust to dust we know that this burial place for the Christian body is temporary. And Paul says there in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, he begins to describe this victory over death. This victory that even the body will have over death. That in verses 15 through 17, the, the dead in Christ, meaning these who are asleep, will rise first to meet the Lord in the air as the trumpet sounds and as Jesus returns for his people. And so he says very practically that we are not to grieve as others who have no hope because we have a hope in the resurrection because even our death is temporary. Now we have a little bit of a dichotomy going on. We have to understand that our bodies, yes, are laid into the ground. And at the very same time, we believe the promises of 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. That as we take off the mortal, we are putting on the immortal. And as we are away from the body, we are at presence with the Lord. There are catechisms that we'll actually, Lord willing, recite together as our profession of faith next week. Questions 36 and 37 help us to navigate this dichotomy. That immediately at the death of the believer, the soul is in the very presence of the Almighty God. And yet our body awaits for the consummation of the kingdom. Our body awaits this day of the Lord, this coming of the Lord, to which Paul writes about here in our text. And so we ask the question, naturally, our our question is, well, when? When will this day of the Lord take place? When will our bodies be raised? When will all of our salvation and our glorification be fully consummated? When will sin, death, the evil one, be no more? Well, the scriptures talk about it in this term called the day of the Lord. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, it talks about it like this. Now, concerning the times and the seasons. Now, interestingly enough, as it talks about the times and the seasons, it talks about it in the Greek as chronos, chronological time, right? That Everybody knows a, a little hint of Greek, uh, Kronos means this indefinite time frame. But then when it speaks of season, karyos, it talks about the specific time. It, you know, it's the season of summer. It's the season of fall. We, we understand something about what is being said here. And, and yet at the same time, it's quite confusing how Paul is writing. He's talking about this indefinite time, but also this definite time. And and our mind is, is thrown into the whirlwind of trying to understand exactly when Paul is referring. But then you notice what he says. We have this time, and we have this season. We have these times, and we have these seasons. And yet, at the same time, you have no need to have anything written to you. Now, doesn't that make you scratch your head? Paul, you you speak way above me, and yet you tell me I have everything that I need to know. What am I to do with this information? What does Paul mean when he says, you have no need to have anything written to you? Does the Thessalonian believers know the date? They, of course, have this natural inclination to say, well, when? So have they solved the equation? Have they... Have they got the scientific algorithm? And they have, they have decided this is the day. This is when the day of the Lord will take place. No, and quite frankly, I'll just call a spade spade. As growing up, as I grew up in the Pentecostal church, I remember having these in time revivals. Right, I remember having these end time prophecies come in. These false teachers. We need to call them as the Scriptures call them. These. These false teachers who would come in and say, well, it's going to be within this year, or it's going to be on this date, or it's going to be when, I remember this one vividly, it's going to be when gas prices hit $3 a gallon. Boy, we've been there. (laughs) And you might even remember years ago when a guy named Harold Camping said it was going to be May. May, the last day of May. And we sat there, and you saw the billboards, and you... Thought on June 1st, boy, he got it wrong yet again. Is that what Paul's speaking to? Does the Thessalonian believers have this special revelation? No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's simply saying you have everything you need to know concerning the day of the Lord. He's saying that you don't need to worry about when specifically... You need to be very disinterested in this speculation of when the day of the Lord will take place. This abstract theology f- trying to figure out when the when the four blood moons, like John Hagee's written a book, the four, when the four blood moons come by, this is when the Lord Jesus is going to come back. Newsflash John Hagee, there's been like a hundred blood moons. So, so what, what is Paul trying to help us understand here about the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ. He's saying that the point in speaking of the second coming of Christ, the point in knowing about the day of the Lord is that you'll be constantly prepared. He's saying very quickly here that it's like a thief in the night. Therefore, you must be prepared. Isn't it interesting how Paul writes this idea of the thief in the night at the end of verse 2? Have you ever spoke to someone who's been robbed or has had their house broken into? It's, it's always a list of everything that we've done to be prepared. It's, you know, you know we put the security code in, the alarm was set, we've, we've locked our doors, uh, we put security cameras around our house, we moved into the nice neighborhood. And you know what? We just did not expect that thief to break into our home. That's always the story, right? And, and, and Paul says, there'll be something like the day of the Lord. It will catch you by surprise. It will be in that time, maybe we might say, when you least expect it. However, you have everything that you need to know because you have everything before you to pursue Christlikeness, likeness, to pursue holiness, and to do it more and more. Remember, it's one big theme, it's one big thought in which Paul is writing, and you remember what he says the will of God is in chapter 4, verse 3. The will of God is your sanctification. That is the business that we ought to be about. And if we're about that business, then even though It is a thief in the night. It will not catch us by surprise because we'll be prepared. That is the point. That is the point that Paul is making. As he talks about the the time of the day of the Lord, the natural inclination is, of course, when, but the Christian mind must say, I have everything that I need to know so that I don't expend energy in chronological speculation but I will set my mind to things that matter, pursuing Christ's likeness, working for the kingdom of God, so that I might be found ready. And interestingly enough, as he moves from verse 2 to verse 3, <coughs> excuse me, Paul begins to use language that is much different than verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, it's, it's we it's us. But in verse 3, it's they. Look at it with me again. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now that shouldn't catch you by surprise. The Lord Jesus talks in these ways as well. Remember in John chapter 10, when he's, speaking of him being the gate of the sheep or him being the good shepherd of the sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd of the sheep. I lay my life down for my sheep. My sheep know my voice. You don't hear me because you're not my sheep. He's speaking of the elect and the non-elect. He's speaking of the people of God and the enemies of God. And, And Paul is imploring that same thought. He's saying, you... You have everything you need to know about the day of the Lord. But on the opposite side of that coin, they will have this sense of false security, but they will be quickly and suddenly destroyed. Now, one of the reasons that Paul talks like this or writes like this is so that we might search ourselves, so that we might search our own hearts to make sure that the faith that we claim is genuine. Paul is not ignorant. He, he understands that in the Thessalonian church, there will be those who belong to the visible body. There will be those who belong to the local churches, yet who are apart from Christ. And, and, and so he writes to this church, imploring those who do not really know Christ, who are just giving lip service to Christ, that they will really come to a true saving understanding of the gospel. But he speaks of this, he speaks of this false security, maybe. There is peace and security, but then sudden destruction. One of the things that we've realized in, in today's world, in our society, in our culture, is that there really is an indifference to the truth of the gospel that the God-man, Jesus Christ himself, will come as judge. And what do I mean by indifference? I mean that we've moved from the days where sinners used to get those tattoos that say only God can judge me, and I'm like, you don't know what you're asking. Um, And yet here I am judging you, right? Uh, but, But we've moved from that day where there is some sort of inclination that, that God will return as judge, but only He can judge me too. I don't care if He's coming or not. You know, just this past couple of weeks, one of the most probably horrifying things I've ever seen uh, is the transgenderism movement. They've been going around to the Major League Baseball parks. And the Los Angeles Dodgers held this, you know, gay-friendly day, transgender family you know friendly day i'm not sure what the what it was called but there was transgender strippers dancing on a man dressed like jesus hanging from the cross it was despicable it was horrifying and, and there was just a lack of a lack of care there's an indifference to the fact that there is a creator who will one day judge you for your sins and your iniquities it's as if they It's as if they they don't know, and yet Romans chapter 1 says they do know. They do know, and yet there's an indifference to it. And and so the unbelieving world, they think that there is going to be peace and security. And yet they will be met with a sudden, a shock and awe, destruction. And yet still even in the church today, in the evangelical church today, there are some who have created a a man-made Jesus who says, well, God really wouldn't do this, would He? God really wouldn't hate sin. God really wouldn't judge sinners. God really wouldn't destroy His creation. I was just riding in, in, in Beth's car the other week, and we play CCM, Contemporary Christian Radio, uh, in the car for the kids. And, and, I, and I heard this this pastor quote-unquote this pastor come on it was like god loves his creation he would never destroy his creation he will make all of his creation new he will give all of his creation life and doesn't that just fly in the face of texts like romans 9 where paul tells us very clearly that god has created some for glorification and yet god has created some for destruction And who are you, O man, to question his ways? He is the potter. We are the clay. And he hardens the hearts of those who he wants to harden. And he softens the hearts of who he wants to uh, soften because he is the sovereign God. And he can do what he wants. And and so we we don't need to be caught up in this man-made religion either. But we must understand that that for those who are apart from God, those who are unbelieving and indifferent to a God who would judge, or those who want to try to claim that Jesus would not hate sin and judge sinners and destroy the wicked, then we must understand that we will be those who are considered the thems in this text. And and notice the illustration that he gives. It's like a a pregnant woman as, as they endure these labor pains, and they will not escape it. Now, something about this illustration that we don't need to misunderstand, it's not as if they know they're pregnant, so they're anticipating the pains that come with delivery. That would be the opposite point that Paul's trying to make here. Rather, it's this severity and inescapability of of the pains that come with with child rendering. And, and, you know, before the epidural, right? Before the times of the epidural, you couldn't decide once the pain starts in pregnancy, once the pain starts in delivery, that, you know what, I don't really want to be pregnant anymore. You know those comedy sitcoms where, where the wife is is given birth and she looks at the husband and says, what have you done to me? Knowing the pain is so severe, that's something like the day of the Lord. Those who are apart from Christ, they will look at the sin-filled culture and they will look at the destroyer of the church, Satan himself, and they'll go, what have you done to me? You have led me astray. Better yet, it would be as if the woman in, in child-rearing, said, what have I done? By being pregnant, by going through this pain, by enduring this suffering, I've done it to myself. And, and that will be like the day of the Lord. They, those who are apart from Christ, they will be like, look at what I have done. And yet at the very same time, they know that there's no escaping from it. And there's no second chance. Just as we mentioned this morning uh, as we were looking at uh, the story of Elisha and the famine. We mentioned that well-known text in Philippians, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. His people and His enemies. And on that day, they will recognize, they will not be indifferent any longer but they'll recognize that they have, they have offended. They have offended this holy God and they deserve the pain. They deserve the destruction. They deserve the shock and awe of the day of the Lord which will be a gnashing of teeth for those who are apart from Christ. But then Paul in verses 4-10 through begin to speak again to the Christian. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. See, what, what Paul is now reemphasizing for us here is you have everything you need to know about the day of the Lord. Understand you want to be a part of the people of God on the day of the Lord. It is going to be destruction, swift destruction for those who are against Christ. Now let me assure you, or let me show you how you know that you are a part of the Lord's people. If you are a child of the light, if you are a child of the day, what have you become in Christ? You are now sons Sons of the light, sons of the day. That's the literal translation. You have been adopted into the family of God, and God has appointed you in verse 9. For God has not destined you for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have been adopted because of the Lord Jesus Christ, his salvation. He's died for you. Verse 10, the gospel. Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Meaning you have been united to Christ so that His atonement, His substitutionary atonement, because He died for you, now you stand as children of God. So therefore, what are we to do? It's right there in verses 6-7. through We are not to sleep, but we are to watch. We're not to sleep, but we are to watch. Don't be spiritually asleep. But be always watchful. You know, what has God required of you, O oh man? Micah 6.8 To act justly. To walk humbly. To love mercy. That is what the Christian ought to be about. To pursue... Christ's likeness. To love God, love neighbor. To put to death sin and pursue Christ's likeness. So He's called us to be awake, to be walking with Jesus, to be serving His church, encouraging one another, building up one another just as you are doing, belonging to the body of Christ. That is what we ought to do. That is how we are watchful and not asleep. But we're also Not to be drunk, but to be sober. We're to be of sound mind. We are to be level-headed. We are to be knowing uh, and convinced of the promises of God. Not finding momentary pleasures in the sins of the flesh, but to always be looking uh, forward to the coming day of Jesus. And then, notice the contrast between verse 3 and verse 8. You know, they, talking about those who are apart from Christ, there is a peace and a security, a false security that they think they have. But the Christian, verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul's pulling from the letter to the Ephesians. He's reminding you don't have a false assumption of peace. But know that we are always at war with the flesh and with Satan himself. There's no time for spiritual ease, but we must have what John Calvin calls a wartime mentality. We're to put on the full armor of God. Put on every piece with prayer. Stand up for for Jesus says. So that we might have the weapons of faith. So that we might Guard ourselves from the evil darts of the devil so that we might stand the test of time and endure being confident and having a hopefulness of our perseverance that is found in Jesus. And then in verse 11, of course, circling all the way back, the soul-searching question is, what does this message do for you? This overview on the day of the Lord, does it encourage you Does it build you up? Or does it bring a lot of discomfort and warning? And that is is what we need to understand. that That if it's comforting us and it's building us up, then we can be assured that we are living for Jesus. If it brings discomfort and fear, then we need to examine ourselves so that we might be ready on the day of the Lord as he comes in judgment against sin. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for uh, some time in this hard text. And we pray, Lord, that as we even continue to examine these uh, dozen or so verses in the next few weeks, Lord willing, that we would be found ready, that we would not consume ourselves with... uh, speculation and, and abstract theology, trying to figure out where in the kingdom of God, where in the reign of Christ we belong so that we, uh, can, so that we can solve all the mathematical theological equations. But let us, uh, with great hope and assurance, say, how does this apply to my life? How can I be sober-minded as a Christian? How can I build one another up in the church? How can I live... A life that edifies my family, my co-workers, and my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ so that we all might be ready on the day of the Lord. So that we might not be put to shame. So that we might not be shocked, but that we will rejoice at your coming knowing that you have brought our consummated victory. Victory over sin. Victory over death. Victory over the grave. And Lord, we do pray that if there's anyone here that this message brings fear to, let them examine themselves so that they might find themselves uh, in faithfulness and, and repentance, knowing, Lord, that You are quick to save all those who call upon You uh, for salvation. Let us not be caught off guard. Let us not uh, be found on the day of the Lord being put to sudden destruction, but let us let us rejoice knowing that we have been brought into eternal life. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen and amen.